If you have your Bibles, I'd like to draw your attention now to God's Word as we find it in Acts chapter 15, Luke's narrative of the acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who's ruling and reigning on the Davidic throne at the right hand of the Father. He's doing so by His Holy Spirit through His church. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 22. And we're going to read to verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And they sent them with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to one mind, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you now knowing that you have redeemed us and saved us for fellowship and communion with you. And we know that one of the primary ways that you do that is through your preached word. And so we come this morning knowing that we're not worthy, but we come boldly and joyously because of Christ who has qualified us to draw near. We know, Father, that you're the one who's called us, Spirit. You've regenerated us. And so we come... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to have communion and fellowship with you. So communicate yourself to us now in your word, we pray, for your glory, for our good, for our edification, and so that the gospel might go forward from this place to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we're picking up this morning where we left off last week in Acts chapter 15, 
And what we've seen in this section of Acts that we're in right now, primarily chapters 13, 14, and 15, is that Jesus' promise that after he lived, died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he promised the church in Acts 1.8 that he would then pour his Holy Spirit upon them, send the Holy Spirit, and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what we're seeing, starting with chapter 13, is that gospel going to the ends of the earth through the church in Antioch being moved by the Holy Spirit and sending out Paul and Barnabas. And what we saw in chapters 13 and 14 is droves of Gentiles coming into the church, coming into the people of God, being saved by grace through faith in Christ as Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel that they had received from the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. But as these Gentiles are flooding the community of faith, flooding the the church, the people of God, the believing Jews now have a question. And their question really is, what is the place of the Mosaic Law? Because for centuries, when a Gentile who was outside of the people of God, the chosen people of Israel, wanted to come into fellowship with the people of God, they needed to be circumcised. And they needed to observe and obey the Mosaic Law. And so what's the place of that now? in the new covenant now that Jesus has come. And so as a result of this, some brothers, some believers in the Messiah that were Jews, were saying, well, see you Gentiles, it's not enough that you have faith in Jesus. You're unclean, and so you need to be clean, cleansed if you were a male by being circumcised, and then obeying the Mosaic law. And this was a false gospel. So Paul and Barnabas, we saw last week in chapter 15, engage in vigorous debate. Neither side gives. And so the church in Antioch says, this is too big for us. Go to Jerusalem. Let this be decided by a council. And then we'll accept that decision. So Paul and Barnabas and some chosen men go and they do that. We saw the council made a decisive um, proclamation about these decisions, that Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic law. He's the reality that the types and shadows in the Old Covenant pointed to. And now that he's come, the Mosaic Law is is gone and done away with. It's it's a matter of indifference now. And so um, this is communicated. And also, they shoot down this false gospel that you need to somehow add works to your faith in order to be saved. Obviously, this false gospel threatened the church because it threatened to obscure the glory of Christ and His graciousness, and it also threatened to cause division between the Jews and Gentiles by holding up again the Mosaic Law, which was always a wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. At least that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, so we'll take his word for it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so now what we're going to see in this next chunk of verses in Acts chapter 15 is how the decisions of the Jerusalem council are now communicated to the Gentile believers through a letter that the council uh, writes and then sends with an envoy of four men to testify to the truthfulness and the validity of this letter. Um, Luke is a, a fantastic historian. Hopefully we've made that abundantly clear to you as we've gone through the um, acts of the, of, of the risen Lord Savior Jesus Christ, Luke's narrative here. He's a wonderful historian, and it was typical for historians during the first century to include historical documents in their historical uh, recounting of events. And what Luke's done here, he has given us this letter 
um, that, that the church wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and then communicated to these Gentile churches that were being harassed um, by these false teachers and by this false gospel. And so as we see the results of the Jerusalem Council communicated through this letter to the Gentiles, I want us by way of an outline to see three results. Three results. First of all, I want us to look at how the unity was maintained in verses 22 through 23. We'll skip verse 24 and go to 25 through 29. That's how the unity of the church was maintained. Second result is how the division that this false gospel was, was presenting and threatening the church was condemned. Um, we'll see that how that division was condemned in verse 24. And then thirdly, the third result, we'll see how the brothers were encouraged in verses 30 through 35. And again, what I don't want us to miss in all of this is the fact that regardless of all the players that are involved in this, the Jerusalem Council, Judas, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas, who's the hero? Who's the main actor in all of this? It's the risen and ascended, ruling and reigning Lord Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit as He is working through His church. He is the one who is acting in this way. So, I don't want you to lose sight of that fact, right? Because that's... That's the, that's the whole point of this book, people. And we go into all sorts of odd places if, if we lose sight of that. And so hopefully the mic doesn't distract you from that, and hopefully everything else that I'm going to say doesn't distract you from that. We'll see how the unity was maintained in verses 22 through 23 and verses 25 through 29. We're going to find out. I'll probably prefer to hold it, but then I'll make all sorts of noises with that. All right, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So the church comes together, and the, the uh, Jerusalem council, they make these decisions. We're going to see more about that in a second, but they decide to send this letter and also to send this envoy of men along with Paul and Barnabas. You remember Paul and Barnabas, this whole controversy started in Antioch, which was about 250 miles um, north of uh, Jerusalem. And so they made this trip down, and now they're going to go back to the church in Antioch and communicate the decision that the Jerusalem council has made. And so they're going to send this letter, they're going to send Paul and Barnabas, but they're also going to send some other brothers along with them to serve as two sets of witnesses, as it were, two sets of two witnesses who will say, yes, we can, because we were there, we can testify that this is in fact what happened at the Jerusalem Council. What this letter contains is legitimate, and our presence, both at the Jerusalem Council and now here with you, will serve to uh, validate that, right? Um, no, no truth can be established aside from two witnesses under the Old Testament, and so they're really living in light of that here as well. So who are the other two that are sent with them? They sent Judas, called Barsabbas. We don't know a whole lot about Judas. He's not Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He's no longer in existence. But here's what we do know. He's a leading, one of the leading men among the brothers in Jerusalem. So he's someone who would be well-respected, 
whose um, comments would carry weight and authority. And so he sent along with Silas. I think we all know who Silas is. He is going to go on to become Paul's missionary companion in the rest of his missionary uh, journeys. And so he's introduced here, and we're going to see him pop up again and again. But they're both leading men among the brothers, and they send them with this following letter. So really, even the men that are sent, the envoy, show the unity between the two churches, between the Jews and the Gentiles. But that's not the only place that this unity is shown and highlighted for us. It's also shown and highlighted in the letter itself. And here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and elders, that is the Jerusalem council, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Now this this address should sort of shock us a bit. The fact that they're saying, the Jerusalem Council saying, we're brothers and you're our brothers, Gentile believers. Now, it was typical in those days for, for Jewish believers or Jews in general to refer to each other as brothers. Why? Because they had a common lineage, an ethnic tie to their father Abraham. They all would say, he's our father, and so they'd call one another brothers. But what the Jerusalem Council is here doing is saying, we're brothers in Christ and you're brothers in Christ. Because now that you're in Jesus, who is the true Israel, who is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, the promised king um, to David who would rule and reign for all eternity and establish God's promised kingdom, now that you're in him, you're our brothers and your father is Abraham, just as valid as our father is Abraham. Think about how shocking that is. Think about what a big shift that is. Highlighting again what? The unity that Jesus has created in his church amongst Jews and Gentiles. This diverse, disparate, um, these two cultures that were so opposed to one another. He's now brought them together in himself, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so who's being addressed here? The believing Gentiles in Antioch and in Syria and Cilicia. So these would be the churches that either Paul and Barnabas planted as they proclaimed the gospel on their missionary journeys, or it would be churches that were planted when the, the, the Jerusalem believers were scattered and went and preached the gospel all over the place um, earlier in the book of Acts. So they're, they're addressing these Gentile believers who were rattled by this false gospel that was being taught by um, Jewish believers. And so they say, actually we're going to skip verse 24, let's go down to 25, we'll come back to 24 later. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Now here's something rather shocking again. This idea here of we've come to one accord, in the Greek it can also mean we've come to one mind. In other words, the decision at the Jerusalem Council, it was unanimous. Now think about that. For me, now this isn't a hill I'm willing to die on, but I'm convinced from the narrative that a part of what that means is that these Jewish believers in the Messiah, who Luke is relentless to tell us they're brothers, they're believers, I think they're teaching this false gospel, they hear the true gospel from the Jerusalem council, and they repent and say, nope, you're right, that's false, we turn away from that. We repent, and, and that's not what is the true gospel. The true gospel is what Paul and Barnabas have been teaching and what they receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. And for me personally, uh, that fact is pretty encouraging because that's a reality that happens in each one of our lives, isn't it? None of us have our understanding of God and his word and his gospel completely squared away, do we? 
And so what happens through that is the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, is he transforms us by the renewing of our mind, by the word. And then we turn away from false doctrine, false gospels, and we come to believe the truth that God has so graciously revealed to us in his word and then to our hearts. So again, another picture of this unity, the fact that they've come to one mind in regards to the place of the Mosaic law. It, it's gone and done away with not the Ten Commandments, but all the ceremonies and, and uh, all the types and shadows. They've been fulfilled by Christ, so they're not binding on you anymore. And works have no place in, in your salvation, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's always been that way, even under the old covenant. And so they're, they're saying that we've come to one mind, one accord in regards to this. And part of that decision was to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul. We know that's Judas and Silas. Notice the affectionate way they talk about Barnabas and Paul. They say, we, we love these brothers. We're dearly affectionate towards them. We, we care deeply for them. And why? Because they're men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word risked there can be translated either devoted or risked. And to me, it doesn't really matter. They're interchangeable. Your devotion is so great that you're willing to risk your life. You risk your life, and so you're showing your devotion. It doesn't really matter. And what we've seen is that Paul and Barnabas have risked their lives. They have shown great devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, it's not ultimately to man. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to the one who died for them when they were dead and lost in their transgressions and sins. And so again, there's this picture of the unity that they have in Christ and the affection that the Jerusalem church has for these brothers from the church in Antioch. We love them. We're, we're, we've locked arms with them. We're in agreement. And so we've come to one mind, and we love these brothers. We have therefore, verse 27, sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. Again, these brothers would be sent to say, yes, this is what happened at the Jerusalem council. That letter is legitimate. It's valid. They may ask questions. Well, how did they come to this decision? What about this and what about that? And they would be able to speak authoritatively to it because they not only represented the Jerusalem church, but they were there for the proceedings of the council as well. And then verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Note that. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The Jerusalem council knows the reason that there's this unity, the reason we've made these decisions is not ultimately because of us. It's not ultimately a man-made decision. It's a decision that the Holy Spirit has led us to make. And who sends the Holy Spirit? The Lord Jesus Christ. So really they're saying the decision of this council has divine authority, which it better, right? Because we're reading this letter that's in the Holy Scriptures themselves. <laughs> so it better be that way. But they're making sure that they understand that. And here's the, the decision ultimately encapsulated. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us, to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. These brothers who were teaching a false gospel, the Jewish brothers who were teaching a false gospel, were trying to lay extra burdens on these Gentile believers who were coming into the church. Peter calls it a, a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. And so they say, since Jesus fulfilled the types and shadows, you don't need to take that yoke up. It's a matter of indifference now. Jesus has fulfilled it. 
So you don't need to obey it. And we've already, the gospel message has always been the same throughout the ages. It's never been faith plus, plus works. It's never been the Messiah plus your works. It's always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah alone. And so that's just as true before he came as it is now. And so we're not going to add any burdens to you. But we do have these requirements for you. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, there's no small amount of controversy around what these four requirements are, and we're not going to go into all of that, but I'm convinced, after much study, that these are cultic practices that the pagans would have regularly participated in. And so, having been steeped in pagan culture, you can imagine now that the Gentiles are believers, some of their old life may, may stick to them. And these, these pagan practices would be particularly repulsive to their Jewish brothers. And so what they're saying is, is don't participate in these for the sake of unity. Just as the Jewish brothers should not try to bind your conscience with the Mosaic law, even though their consciences have been formed and bound for centuries by these, they're not to look down on you and try to be strict in the way they're going to be strict on themselves. And you shouldn't try to flaunt your liberty in front of them. The whole point of all of this is you've been given this Christian liberty in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike, these, these totally different cultures with these totally different backgrounds. And so use your Christian liberty not to satisfy yourself, not to please your, your flesh, but be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be in order to serve your brother or sister in Christ. Paul talks about this all over the place in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, Romans chapter 14. We're going to look at that more closely even as we jump into the next chapter, chapter 16. But the point is, maintain this unity that Christ has created. And so Sovereign Grace, when we come to application for us, do we rejoice in the fact that there's this reality called Christian unity that is ours as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same Savior who laid down His life for us and saved us when we were dead and lost in our transgressions and sin. We have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we have the same Heavenly Father. And so because we're in Christ, we're a part of, of one another. And so we are brothers and we are sisters. I know it's probably pretty cheesy to some of you, but I call my Christian brothers literally brother. It probably, probably annoys some of them. But for me, I don't call unbelievers that. I don't call them brother. But for me, it's a reminder, these are my siblings. This is my family. And so I need to live in light of that. And I need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be. And not the truth, but I need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it may be, whatever my Christian liberty allows me to have, what Jesus has given me on these indifferent matters where Scripture doesn't speak. I need to be willing to sacrifice that so I can serve them, so I can love them. So are we seeking ways to, as Paul commands us in Ephesians chapter 4, not to create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, but to maintain the unity of the Spirit of the bond of peace. It's not our place to create it. Jesus has already done that. Our calling is to maintain it. And how do we do that? By relying on the Holy Spirit in obedience to his word 
as Jesus empowers us by his spirit to be able to do that. Is that our heart? Because what we're going to see is when the Gentile believers hear this, they don't grumble and say, I've got to give up some of my, my liberties. They rejoice. They're glad that they get to show their love for their Jewish brothers in this way. And that should be the attitude that we have as well. We're willing to sacrifice everything for our brothers and sisters in Christ as a small picture of how Jesus sacrificed everything for us. That's what love is. It's not self-service. It's the service of others. So, but what we see in the first result is that Jesus maintains the unity of the church in its message, in its, its brotherhood, if you will, in the clarity with which it's able to behold the glory and grace of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, the second result I want us to look at is how the unity, nope, that's not right. The division, excuse me, was condemned. How the division was condemned in no uncertain terms in verse 24. And this isn't going to require much explanation. We're going to get to application uh, fairly shortly here. But verse 24 says, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So here we get some of the backstory um, that we talked about last week that these brothers, these Jewish brothers who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but you also needed to add these mosaic works, circumcision and whatnot, in order to be saved, they came from Jerusalem. They were Jewish brothers. And so they probably came even claiming, hey, we've been sent by Jerusalem, we have their authority, and so we're going to reject Paul and Barnabas' gospel. And here's the true gospel. In order to be a part of the people of God, you've got to be circumcised if you're a male, and you've got to obey the Mosaic law. And so what the council is making clear here is we didn't send them. We didn't send them to teach you that message. And we're horrified at how they sought to distort the glory of Jesus, the grace of the triune God in saving you, and trying to break up this unity that's actually in the church. So in no uncertain terms, the council says we condemn that division. Now, interestingly, they don't condemn the individuals because, again, my reading of the text is that they repented. They turned away from it. And the church grew and was strengthened as a result. It's not beyond Jesus to do that by his Holy Spirit. Now, the question I want to ask, though, is, is, is how, does this, how do these false gospels show up today? In what ways do we try to add to the gospel as the church today? And there's all sorts of low-hanging fruit that I could pick on rather easily. And I actually want to pick on us. Because I think that's the, those are the false gospels that we're the most blind to. Now, obviously, I want to put a disclaimer here. The, the addition to the gospel, the false gospel being taught here in Acts 15, is obviously unique. In historical redemptive history, the church is coming out of centuries of submitting to the Mosaic law. It's been abundantly clear on it's not faith and works. It's faith alone, through grace alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone. But the Mosaic law has always been the gateway. And so it's a unique time in which the old covenant's going away and the new covenant has been cut. And you've got these two merging of cultures, Jews and Gentiles. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time in the history of the church, a strong time of reformation. So what's happening, no doubt, is unique here. But I think there's also parallels that we can see how false gospels crop up in the church today. And here's the theology behind why I think false gospels crop up. I mean, listen, when we were created in God's image in the garden, we were created to live in submission to God's law. 
to God's word. We thrived in that context. It's what we were created for. That was the end or the function that we were created for to the glory of God. Now the problem is what happened. By the way, when God created us in that way, he gave us the ability to obey his word and his law. Adam and Eve were able to obey. They didn't. And then as a result, through our union with Adam, as our federal head, his guilt is imputed to us, Romans chapter 5. And so we are conceived in corruption, Psalm 51. We're, we're corrupt, and so we are unable now to obey the law of God. And yet there's this drive within us to try to seek reconciliation with God and justify ourselves through the works of our hands. And that makes sense in one sense because we were created to live in submission to God's law. The problem is we're not able to now. So each one of these false gospels, it, it, they underplay the radical nature of our fallenness now. The way that, that we are completely incapable of saving ourselves by the works of our own hands. There's always some little vestige of you can save yourself in these false gospels. And scripture is abundantly clear, we're lost and dead in our transgressions and sins. How, what, what, what steps can a dead corpse take to come back to life? None, it's dead. And so we're dead as well. And these false gospels say, no, there's a little bit of life in you. And, and you've got to exercise that in order to be saved. And that's adding works into salvation, folks. That's saying that you are, can be justified and saved by your own works. So what does this look like today? Um, in the evangelical church, and I'm sure these are ones that, that tempt us on a regular basis. First of all, I think we redefine faith. We make faith a work. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Uh, you've seen variations of it, I'm sure, in various churches. But it's basically that, you know, there were all these commands in the Old Testament, but God really wanted to show his grace. And so now that Jesus is here, Jesus has just lowered that bar. So, you know, all those Ten Commandments, you, you know you can't obey those. But... You can have faith in Jesus. So if you do that, you're in. I'll count that as your righteousness. So what's happened? Faith has become a work, something that you do, and that God then counts as your righteousness. That's salvation by your works, people. That's not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You say, okay, well then how am I supposed to think about faith? Faith is, first of all, Ephesians chapter 2. What is it? It's a gift from God that he gives to you. When the Holy Spirit regenerates you, takes you out of spiritual death into spiritual life, union with Jesus, you then exercise that faith. And all faith does is it passively receives the Lord Jesus Christ. You're united to him. But that faith doesn't save you. And it's not a work. Christ saves you and redeems you by uniting you to himself by grace through faith. And so we get that mixed up. And that's shown up again and again throughout church history. Go read the confessions. Go read the catechisms. You will see that the church has bent over backwards to make sure that we don't make that error. And yet we make it all the time nowadays. We redefine faith and make it a work. Secondly, is the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I know you've run into people who cling to this. This was my TBN comment earlier was a precursor to this. But what, what is the prosperity gospel? Well, in all of these Gospels, again, by the way, God's not holy. And your ultimate problem isn't that you need to be reconciled to a holy God and the fact that you're an object of his wrath for your rebellion against him. That's never the message. Um, I guess that could be the message in the first one. But in the rest of them, it, God's not perfectly holy and he doesn't require perf perfect holiness from you. You just have to do this one work. And so it, it downgrades the holiness of God. 
And it elevates the ability of man to be able to save himself. And it redefines salvation. Case in point, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. What's your problem? It's not that you're an object of God's wrath, because God loves everybody, right? It's that you have to deal with all these, these effects of the fall. All of these curses that God has pronounced, your body decays, you don't have enough money. And so you know what? Jesus came to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you listen to his teachings and you let him love on you, then you can be healthy and wealthy and wise too. Because, right, Jesus was healthy and wealthy and wise, wasn't he? Wait a minute. No, that's not right. He wasn't, was he? He had to rely on other people's giving to sustain his livelihood as he did his public ministry. And, and, and he's killed by a bunch of people that hate him. That's the, that's the prosperity gospel. That doesn't sound very incredible to me. It sounds like a life of self-denial and sacrifice. And yet the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel says your great problem is these effects of the curse. And Jesus comes to reverse those so you can be healthy and wealthy and wise. And what happens is Jesus ends up becoming your life coach. He's the one who's going to walk alongside of you. And, and teach you how to have the prosperous life, because that's the life that he led. No, that's not true. All right, the next one is the felt needs gospel. Probably the one that's going to hit the closest to home, because this seeps in all over the place. And this sort of, um, again, God loves everybody, but my problem is I don't really feel that. I have all sorts of really weird, bad feelings. And I have these needs that need to be, um, these, these feelings that feel like needs and they need to be fulfilled. And so the good news is that's why Jesus came. He came to meet all your felt needs. He came to make, make you feel loved and, 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 and make you feel like you're just a great person so you can be the person that you always know you could be. So what is Jesus in this case? He's your therapist. And your, your real problem is your own internal struggles. It's not that you're, 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 you're at war with an almighty God who can cast you into hell for all of eternity. So you see, again, this is, this is a false gospel. And how do you get out of it in each one of these situations? It's by what you do. Jesus has come to give you good advice that will get you out of these problems. He doesn't come declaring good news of what he will do to restore you. You're at the center, not the triune God who's graciously working all things to the praise of his glorious grace and has graciously saved you from his wrath by his son. God is not the just and justifier. He's just here to do your bidding, essentially. Puts you at the center of the universe. Now, the last one that's also popped up throughout church history really focuses on your sorrowful feelings. You have to feel this great depth of despair for your sin. And once you feel that enough, then you can know that you're really saved. So really the focus is on your internal experience. And I don't know about you, but my internal experience in the Christian life, my relationship with the Lord is like this. And so if that's the gauge, I'm going to be all over the map. It makes it about your subjective well-being or the despair that you feel. Do you really feel the depth and the weight of your sin now, no one can tell you exactly what that gauge is, and so people that often fall prey to this, it's just this black hole that they struggle to come out of. It's this cycle of depression and feeling like maybe they can do enough good works to, to come out and really make themselves feel bad. This is part and parcel of Roman Catholicism, by the way. But you see, it's your subjective experience added to faith, and so it, it ends up being a false gospel, a gospel of works. And so, brothers and sisters, for, for us, may we pray for discernment for ourselves as individuals, for our families, 
for us as, as, a, as a leadership that we would be able to discern when these are cropping up, and that corporately as a church we would condemn and turn away from these false gospels. Because why? Again, they obscure and seek to eclipse the glory of God and His centrality in all things and the fact that we need to be reconciled to Him and that that only happens by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All of these other false gospels, though, creep into our minds. They're the air that we breathe. And so may God protect us from them. He, he did in the early church. And so may we pray that He will continue to do that as well, knowing that there is this progressive nature in which we all hold to errors and want to one degree or another, and there's a patience that we show because we know the Holy Spirit is purifying one another. And may we exercise wisdom as we think about when to engage and when to address that and when to go, let me just pray for them. Hopefully you're going to do both if you're going to address it. But I'm just going to pray for them and I'm going to see what the Lord is going to do here. Do we have that patience? Because we know the Holy Spirit is the one who is sanctifying us. Do you see the balance here? We're being patient with each other, and yet we have no patience for false gospels. We outright reject those, and yet we're, we're patient with people as the Holy Spirit sanctifies them. Last little tag on here. Some of you are uncomfortable going, well, guy, what is the place of works then? Are you saying there's no place for works in the Christian life? Are, you kind of sound like an antinomian right now. You just throw in the law out and there's no place for works? Not at all. If we, if we think that, then we don't understand the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because he's not only broken and paid for the penalty of sin, he's also broken the power of sin. So that we're not slaves to it anymore. And we're progressively being sanctified together. But when you're united with Christ, Romans chapter 6, Paul addresses this charge. Let us sin that grace may abound. He says, you don't understand what your union with Christ means. It means you have new desires. It means you, you love the law of God and you want to obey it. Not so that you can be saved, but because you are saved. The reformers were fond of saying, um, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith is going to manifest itself in works. But you don't do those in order to be saved. You, you do those because you are saved. So may God grant us discernment to reject false gospels and false doctrine. But we see the second result here in all of this as a result of the Jerusalem Council, is that the unity of the church first was maintained, the division that was threatened by the false doctrine was condemned, and lastly, let's look now um, briefly at how the brothers were encouraged in verses 30 through 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Now, technically, they're going north, but you always go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem's up on a hill, so don't worry. The apostles weren't confused geographically, and the Holy Spirit somehow made an error in his inspiring of Scripture. That's just the way they spoke. Um, we do the same today. But they're sent off going down to Antioch, and, um, they, they, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter so that this envoy of men are sent, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, they have the letter, and they call the believers in Antioch together. They say, come together, we have a letter to, lead you, to read to you. It's the decision from the Jerusalem council. 
And so they come together. It's probably not the Lord's Day. That's my guess because they would have already been gathered. And so they call them together. And then one of the four or someone who was trained in oratory would read the letter. They weren't all literate back then. So they also had to be literate in order to read this letter, obviously. And so the rest of them would, would hear and, and listen this letter. And here's the result when they hear it. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The brothers rejoiced. These Gentile brothers in Antioch are so encouraged. Now, why are they encouraged? First of all, they're encouraged because the Jerusalem council defended them. They defended the gospel that they had heard and received from the lips of Paul and Barnabas. And they said, yes, that's the true gospel. And we're not going to add any other burdens to you. And salvation is not by works. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus the Messiah alone, to the praise of, and glory of God alone, so that no one has anything to boast about. But they're also encouraged by the fact that they're counted as brothers. The way that they're addressed and I also think, by the way, that they're encouraged because who is the one who wrote this letter through the Jerusalem Council? The Holy Spirit did. It's right there back in um, verse sorry, 28. Sorry, 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So the Holy Spirit's writing this through the Jerusalem Council. And who's the one that sends the Holy Spirit? The Lord Jesus. So what's going on here? Why are they rejoicing? Why are they strengthened? Why are they encouraged? Because as Jesus' sheep, who have their ears unstopped, they hear the voice of Jesus and they respond. They respond with great joy because the Holy Spirit has opened up their eyes and ears to see the glory of Jesus in His Word. Because what happens when the word is communicated and preached is, again, the triune God graciously communicates himself to his people. And so they're rejoicing, and they're encouraged, and they're challenged. All of these things are happening through the proclamation of the word of God. So the message of the letter was no mystery to them. Whatever these four requirements ultimately mean, the recipients got it. The Gentiles understood it and they rejoiced. Verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So Judas and Silas, representatives from Jerusalem, now encourage the Gentiles. Who knows? Here's a little speculation, so you don't have to put much stock in this. But maybe they're going through the Old Testament saying, Look, you guys were promised, you Gentiles were promised to be a part of Israel, and Jesus is the true Israel, and now you are a part of us. This was promised all throughout the Old Testament. Look at how Jesus is everywhere. And the Gentile believers are encouraged, whatever it was that they taught them, and they're strengthened. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. Who was sent off in peace? Judas and, and Silas, back to Jerusalem. And so what this is a picture of is, again, they, they sent them off in peace. Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father as the promised Davidic king, has brought peace in his church. Between these people who there should have been no peace. They're completely different cultures. They're at odds with each other. Historically, they hated one another, despised each other. But Jesus has done something miraculous and brought peace here. And so, as the final nail in the coffin, if you were, on Luke's part, to show the reality of this union, they send them off in peace. 
There's peace between us. We're brothers. We're family. You strengthened us. We have great reason to rejoice. And so what we see is Jesus again maintaining the peace of his church, protecting and providing for his bride. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they're teaching, they're preaching the word of the Lord, they're encouraging the saints here, and probably again just showing through all of the scriptures that this was going to happen. And so the Gentiles are just elated. They've really been rescued. I mean, they experienced this freedom in Jesus, and then these false teachers threatened it, and we're going to take it away, and now they have it again. And who is the one that's behind all of this? Don't miss this fact through all the players and all the things that were, were happening, all of the historical events. The Lord Jesus Christ is working all things for the good of his church. And as we look at how the word encourages and strengthens and, and, and causes great joy in believers, Sovereign Grace, you need to understand this is why. I hope this is being made abundantly clear as we go through the book of Acts. God communicates himself. The, the triune God communicates himself through his word. And so as your pastors, we're not here to entertain you. We're not ultimately to sell you on how awesome our personalities are, because that's a joke. We're not even here ultimately to show you how awesome our shepherding skills are, because sadly, we're going to fail you in certain ways. That's not our heart's desire, but we will. Ultimately, our responsibility is to hold Jesus high in his word to point you to the triune God who has graciously and lovingly redeemed you in accord with his plan from eternity past. Because as you fellowship with the triune God through his word, as we declare it, you're encouraged, you're strengthened, you're challenged. And we get to see this reality constantly in you. Your great, clear joy communicated to us on a regular basis as we study the word and proclaim it to you. It's a great joy for us to be able to do that because we see the Lord at work in you in the midst of all of it. And who's behind that? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's maintaining this unity. He's protecting his church. He's preserving her from false gospels and false doctrines. He's progressively sanctifying her and even keeping those who for a time may profess a false gospel and teach a false gospel to turn away from it as I believe the Jewish brothers eventually did. But here's what I want to leave you with. Do you see how glorious your Savior is? Do you see how glorious Jesus is. He's not only lived and died for you, rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father for you, and sent the Holy Spirit to take all that He's accomplished and apply it to you. He's also preserving and protecting you. He's got you in the palm of your hand and no one can take you out of it. And he's preserving this unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see the love of our triune God at work and how Jesus cares for his church by the Spirit to the praise of, our, of the Heavenly Father? Do you see it? Because Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so while he was working in unique ways in the church during the time of the apostles, he's at work in the church today. We know that from Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands. What are the lampstands? 
the church is. He's caring for us. He loves us. And the good news is there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. It's all of grace. By faith alone. In Christ alone. He's our Redeemer. Nothing we can do. All to the praise of our triune God. If that doesn't encourage you, I don't know it will. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're so thankful for how your word speaks to us, for how you speak to us through it, for how you communicate graciously yourself to us. Jesus, we thank you for your commitment to your church, that you will build her and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. May that give us great joy, comfort, boldness. And may we know, as we proclaim the good news of what Jesus, you have done, that you will draw many to yourself. May that excite us. May we be joyous to share that good news with our neighbors, our co-workers. May we look for opportunities. May we not be afraid to be rejected. We know that's part and parcel of following you, Jesus, because the world thinks we're crazy. But Father, we're so thankful for how you worked in the church then, how you're at work in the church today. And we pray that we would trust you more, that you'd be at work in us, and that the lessons that we learn and, and how we see you at work today would encourage us to be faithful in all things. We are incapable of doing these things on ourselves, so we cast ourselves on your mercy. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.